You're listening to a podcast with I'dRatherBeWriting.com. My name is Tom Johnson. I'm talking with Andrea Feinberg today about API documentation. Uh, we're really going to highlight some best practices. She's done a lot of research. Uh, they've, they've come out with new iterate, iterations of their or new versions of their API docs based on these best, best practices. And so, um, Andrea, tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, kind of maybe where you work and what your APIs uh, are related to. Sure thing, Tom. So I am the content strategist, user assistance, and documentation manager over at Emotient. Um, I've taken on the role of an information developer, an information architect, knowledge manager, uh, avid listener, and a, a title I really enjoy, a professional cat herder. I've also designed and implemented strategic and process-based plans with solutions, roadmaps, and test plans. And Emotient is based in San Diego, California, and it is the leading authority on emotion detection and sentiment analysis technologies that are enabling a future of an emotion-aware computing. And so our cloud-based solution is Emotion Analytics. And Emotion Analytics enables marketers to quantitatively analyze what has traditionally been mostly qualitative information, being that of emotional response and how people react to certain stimuli. And so Emotient has simplified and automated those critical qualitative research measurements, including sentiment, likability, intent to buy, and user engagement. And so with our cloud-based solution of Emotion Analytics comes the Emotion Analytics API. So just to make sure I understand kind of what the API is about, let's say I have a product, a, a new iPhone smartwatch or something. Uh, mm -hmm. Using emotion analytics, I could gauge kind of the general uh, sentiment of the population's feelings toward this product online. Is that what I can do? Right. It would be their, the, the analysis of their sentiments and emotional responses towards certain stimuli. Cool. And so we it, we measure the rates of um, attention, engagement, and overall sentiment, including positive, negative, or neutral. So it's really cool. It's a wonderful new technology, and especially with the latest and greatest Internet of Things, we're going to be hearing more about this type of technology uh, also, as we're hearing more about um, augmented reality, wearables, and so on. All right. Now, you mentioned that you've done some, some research on best practices for your, your API or, or for API documentation. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, what you found. What are some best practices to keep in mind? Well, some of the best practices that I found through all of my research and through a lot of surveys that I put out into the field were surprisingly right on par with, with, with what we as 
content strategists and technical communicators um, are focused on. And, and so I found them to be quite similar. Uh, one of the first best practices I found was not to take any shortcuts when you write your API documentation. Um, so when we started writing the API documentation, I made sure to really listen to the audience and do a thorough and comprehensive audience analysis because I wanted to make sure that I was looking at it being in their shoes. I didn't want to assume anything because more often than not, when you assume so many things, they're usually wrong. So um, another best practice is really to make sure that the documentation is easy to use, it's easy to read, it's easy to understand, it's consistent and accurate. So you want to make sure really that you create and implement a concise yet a detailed plan. And, you know, developers dread writing documentation. And the API documentation is really the way to a developer's heart. So well-designed documentation, in my opinion, is really the key to getting users and developers excited about and interested in the product. And, you know, you always hear that your product could be the newest, most powerful thing in the world, yet people don't understand how to use it. It doesn't really matter how great it is. Another best practice that I found very interesting was that API documentation should always include what I call an overview. And you can think of that sort of as a quick start guide, an introduction, or as a landing page. So the landing page here, or the overview in your API, is really where developers start. It, it's like a novel. When you go to read a novel, you're going to start at the very beginning. Well, this is exactly the most critical and essential piece of information for developers because the most difficult part of adopting an API for developers is at the very beginning. So if there's a learning curve or if the developer is new to the programming language, then this makes the content and the introduction that more essential to their success. So what I found doing my research was that developers really, really want to have a minimalistic quick start on that landing page. They would like to have simple, easy, minimal steps. Ideally, five steps or less or even three steps or less. And... They want to know in that overview, what type of API is this? Could you provide me with a code sample or an example? And why should I use it? Another best practice is that the API documentation must be readable and scannable. What I heard over and over again from developers was that there are so many APIs right now online that are incomplete. They're not consistent. They're not accurate. They can't even, they can't be read easily. 
So I really wanted to make sure that the API documentation was easy to read, that users would understand it, um, that they weren't having to hyper um, to click on every. It, it, I didn't want to make it full of links and hyperlinks so that they were having to click here, there, and everywhere and jump around throughout pages to find what they needed. I wanted to make sure that it it contained minimal clicking so that they could go from the path from A to B quickly and easily, and it was clear and simple. Um, another best practice that I found out the developers want is they would like to have a single page doc that they can scroll through that keeps the related topics closely together. I also found out that documentation really for an API is the product interface. So it really has to look awesome. It has to look fantastic and be clean, simple, and minimal because API documentation is really the core to the user experience. I also found out documentation should really be task focused with simple steps. As technical communicators, we know that even in procedural based documentation, if steps are too complex or difficult to understand, it's very discouraging and quite frustrating. And the same holds true for API documentation. I wanted to make sure that do the documentation was clear, it's simple, easy to understand, and that it didn't leave developers feeling discouraged and frustrated. So, uh, wow, that's, that's a, those are some great points. I think you mentioned about seven there, but if not, we can keep going. Um, I, I'm curious to know a little bit about um, kind of how, how did you collect the information? You mentioned a survey. Did you reach out to people, uh, engineers in your own company and other companies or just within your own company? Or how did you gather the info? Well, it was interesting. I wanted to get a comprehensive view from the developer community. So what I decided to do was to create a survey that I put online as well as um, some people wanted me to email it to them. And it just contained 10 questions. And I just wanted to ask developers, not only in my company, but in the development community, um, what they felt was important to them when they need to use API documentation that they're not familiar with or when they are familiar with it, what makes up their favorite type of API documentation. And so it really was informative interesting and helpful as a technical communicator and content strategist to find out that they really had similar opinions and ideas when it came to these, what I call industry standards and best practices. Yeah. You know, um, there was another survey done by programmable web, um, in 2013. And, uh, th this group was looking at they surveyed 230 or so people 
mostly programmers, on what are the important factors of documentation, and the number one response was complete and accurate documentation. So that definitely aligns with uh, at least a couple of these points you mentioned, the thoroughness of documentation, the clarity of it. Um, one question I'm curious about, it seems like the latest design trends with API, API documentation is to create a kind of a kind of interactive console where you plug in some values, you hit a button like try, and it it executes the endpoint and shows you the response right there. Um, some people do this through Swagger or Mashery IO Docs or some other tools. Um, did you ever did you ever have any kind of feedback about whether developers truly want or like an interactive API experience where they can try out the calls within the documentation, or is that not really uh, something they noted? Well, you know, interesting enough, when I asked, you know, if they wanted a site that they could, it, it was more interactive, just in the way that you were describing, I didn't get a lot of input on that. But what I did get input on was that they wanted the API documentation to be uh, responsive and they wanted it to be, you know, have all of the information located on one page, even though while you're scrolling through the long document, to have the TOC that was static. And so those were the preferences that I received. That's a really interesting design trend. I've seen that in quite a few APIs where, uh, I don't know, some people call this infinite scrolling. As you scroll down, it loads more of the content. Other times, maybe they, it really is just one page. Um, and it does definitely minimize clicking. Um, were there any API examples that that kind of demonstrated this minimal clicking, single page type doc experience that you thought uh, worked worked fairly well? Well, so there were there were um, a, a few sites, and when I did my survey, what I wanted to do was I I went through some other APIs that I looked at when I researched API best practices. And what I did was I created, if, if you could imagine a, a table and what I had on the left side of the table were the categories of things that I felt or things that developers have told me, these are must-haves that we as developers want in our documentation, for example, syntax, description, parameters, and so forth. And then on each column to the right, we took a look at the API for desk.com, Stripe, GitHub, Django, Parse, and Backbone. And I went and I listed down all of the categories in the sections and what they included. And so m most, the, the overwhelming response that I received was that Stripe was the favorite. Uh, 
because it had that when I mean single page doc, I don't necessarily mean it only has one page. What I mean is a single page doc that is somewhat limit limitless and endless has endless scrolling. So you can scroll through it and then it loads up the content. I've got a, another question here as a follow-up to the, the single page doc um, sure. design model. So if you've got a set of reference documentation that has clear sections, like you mentioned, parameters and what is, what's the syntax, that's fine. That can be, that can be fairly compressed. But what if you've got a lot of other stuff, your notes about, uh, quirks, bugs, uh, code samples, um, I don't know, lots of other information that really tends to bulk up the documentation so that it's starting to get fairly long. I know that jQuery's documentation is kind of like this. They've got several code samples on each, on each, um, each method and so forth. And, and, uh, I mean, if, if all that kind of consolidates into the single page doc experience, it seems like it would just be, be, get to be long. I, I, I mean, how do you process the single page doc? Because we've had so much, training in techcom or, or maybe not training but tradition in techcom practices that uh people want information chunked and so forth so how does how does this chunk tradition fit with the single page experience well well i i think that in the single page experience you're still going to have the related information um in topics that are located close together in the document. I believe that there, there is a lot of value and there are a lot of benefits to put in hyperlinks so that they can quickly jump to different sections in the document. But I think it's, it's a bit of a juggle because like you said, in the technical community, we're trained and taught, especially with the latest trends, you know, there's DITA, there is, you know, um, you know, content chunking and repurposing and reuse. And I believe that that type of documentation, you can use bits and pieces of it in an API document, yet what developers want and need and what they expect to see is slightly different. Hmm. Well, it's definitely interesting. It's, it's very uh, thought provoking. So uh, another question I have is let's say you, you, you arrive at the conclusion that Stripe's API is a great API to, to model um, in terms of the design. How do you go about actually building it do you have uh do you have designers on at your disposal and and resources to say we want you to home build or to build a, a site from scratch on node.js or something and include all these features or uh how, how did you go about you know building and executing on all these best practices with design well this was sort of just one of the most defining and exciting moments um, in my career at Emotion was that I found out 
what Stripe used to create their API. And it's called Slate. And you can use Slate to create responsive documents for your API that are based off of the, of the Stripe model. And it's a, it's a very minimal, simple, clean, out-of-the-box solution. Um, and so that enabled us to create an API doc site that had all of those best practices and industry standards, as well as we were able to easily customize it. It has a one-page static site. There are one of the great things about it that's very valuable is that on the right side, you have tabbed language-specific code samples. So you can have examples that are tabbed for um, JSON, um, Python, C, and, and so forth for all of the languages. Um, that developers use. So what's great is that it's it's language agnostic for um, a REST API. Um, also, it's a, we have the three-column layout. You have in-page search, and you have syntax highlighting. So it's, it's very easy for developers to see what the code samples and examples are because they are against a dark background. Yeah, you know, I've, I've checked this out before, this, the slate thing. Um, is this, uh, so this is made by, is this made by the programmable web people or it says, uh, I know there's like a GitHub repository and it says trip it, but I feel like I had a conversation at one point with a programmable web guy and he mentioned that they designed slate actually to model um stripe or something uh but so you actually just use you use the slate kind of template and the package mm -hmm. there right right wow. wow um cool were there any uh challenges with it like did you ever say oh we we really don't want this functionality and you had to like go in and do a total like uh hack job to fix it or was it did it was it pretty much on target it, it was pretty much on target, and that's what was so fantastic about it, was that we, I put together a list of our wants and our needs, and it was a simple, scalable solution. Okay, so I'm just kind of looking at a sample Slate site, and uh, I'm wondering, um, so on the right-hand side, you said that there's... So there's three panes. On the very right pane, you have a tabbed section for different languages. Um, what happens if you've got a sample response uh, that's just really, really long? I guess that creates a lot of like white space between the others. Anyway, it's kind of probably going to be too hard for the uh, listeners to visualize. So I'll put a bunch of links uh, to some sample slate template doc sites. Oh, I think that um, that would be really helpful. Let's talk about uh, the the other interesting point. You mentioned that developers actually want something responsive. And I see that Slate's template uh, has a responsive design out of the box. I've never really understood this. but I mean, I thought most developers, they sit at their computers all day. Um, do they, they really 
break out their iPhone or their iPad and and refer to documentation that way while they code? Well, you know, you'd be surprised at how many people now are using their mobile devices, whether it's an iPad, a, a tablet, um, or their 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 smartphone to read and to use documentation. I I think that this is a new trend that's becoming more popular, and we're going to see that um, this is going to be the norm. So another question. um, As far as I can tell, Slate doesn't dynamically generate sample responses. You you pretty much get some responses and hard-code them in there, right? Right. Um, so, um, my question about that is, um, hold on, let me gather my thoughts here. It just, just slipped past me. Uh, there's, there seems like there's so much hype around, around these interactive experiences. Uh, but maybe one problem with these, these swagger sites that you plug in your own API key, you plug in the own values you want. One problem with them is that, you're probably not going to have a lot of data in there if you're building a site right then. Um, it, the responses aren't are probably going to be somewhat anemic um, with these with these other response or with this method that you're describing, where you you, you get the response and then you hard code it into the template. Um, it seems like it's a a little bit more stable, um, as well as. B, it's going to be more complete and full in terms of the content in the response. Right. I agree. And I also feel that it's going to be more accurate. That is the point. Okay. That was the thought that escaped me. Okay. So the the big argument for for all of this auto doc driven stuff um, is, is documentation drift and this idea that unless the documentation is embedded in the source code, then somehow um, it's going to drift away and become inaccurate from all these changes developers are constantly making without telling anybody. So how, how do you deal with doc- documentation drift? I think the documentation drift is is always a challenge, but I feel that the best way to overcome that challenge and to deal with it directly is really to make sure that you're involved in every step of the process and in all parts of the process so that you maintain consistent daily communication. I I think that communication really is key so that you know exactly when something changes and you can make sure that the documentation reflects that so that the documentation remains consistent and accurate. I hear a lot about, um, well, at least in where I work, people tend to uh, highlight how we're an agile shop and that a decision made over lunchtime when I wasn't there is, uh, you know, enough for people to go ahead and make a change without telling anybody or even putting, uh, logging it in Jira. Do you ever, do you ever run into situations like this where, where things change and, I mean, you can try to be at stand-ups and, and gather information, but in these agile environments, people almost feel like they have a 
an excuse to just make changes on the fly. I think that that happens a lot from what I've heard. Um, we're also part of an agile environment, yet we're very meticulous about entering our stories into JIRA. And I work very, very closely with our senior UX developer. And so she and I are always communicating daily. And sometimes I'll hear about things that are new that I wasn't aware of or that people just failed to mention to me or meetings that I wasn't included on. And so I make sure right then and there um, I have the correct information as to what's going to change, when it's going to change, and what do I need to do to make sure that it's reflected in all of the appropriate places. So um, you mentioned that you wear a lot of different hats, content strategist, user assistance, information architect, knowledge manager, cat herder. Uh, it seems like uh, one challenge, uh, if you're if you're kind of, if you've got your head wrapped around so many of these different content strategy angles and how you're going to publish it and gather the info and display it and who the users are, do you ever run across the the issue where a developer says, oh, you know, uh, users will get this, they'll understand this, or we don't need a code sample here. This is, this is going to be obvious to anybody who is a JavaScript developer who knows anything. Um, it, it's, it's somewhat hard to judge whether something is clear or judge whether there's enough information given uh, without really being that audience. And in API documentation, I mean, we're very different a lot of times from the developer audience. So how do you judge whether something is clear or not when a developer tells you it is? Well, I've, I've, I've run into this challenge many times. And so... When the developer feels as though it's so obvious, it really doesn't need to be documented. Um, I, I try and give them an example of something maybe that I wrote that I felt was, you know, that, that they may think was so obvious and they didn't need more explanation on but it turns out that they do. And so just making people aware that this, the audience that you're writing for and the audience that's using the API documentation may not be familiar with the language and they may not be as advanced technically as you assume they are. And so it's really important to make sure that you take into consideration and focus on all levels of learners because as technical communicators, we don't really know the exact level technically that people are coming in at. You, you did mention in one of your best practices a strategy of, I think this was in my notes here, point number, oh, I don't know, three maybe? Um, some kind of overview topic, um, like a Hello World tutorial that gets some a quick start into the application. Um, is that a strategy for addressing an advanced audience and then maybe adding more detail somewhere else for less advanced audiences? I mean, uh, do you, 
do you kind of consciously co- design the information to allow for different levels of knowledge among your audience? Absolutely. So in, in the overview or the quick start, it's, it's at the very beginning. It's just a short, simple, easy, minimal introduction that gives sort of the, the overview, the, the general information. And then as the further you drill down into each specific section, then it contains all of the details necessary for, um, for you to develop with the API. Um, as you're working and creating the documentation, uh, especially maybe all the tutorial information, what do you, what do you use? Do you use Markdown as your, as your syntax or Dita as your syntax or something else? So it's usually Markdown. And tell me about that. Was that hard? I mean, did you have to make compromises about not being able to reuse content with a conref tag or something? No, no, it it was very simple. And uh, was this, uh, if you use Slate as your template, um, does Slate require uh, Markdown as the kind of format or as an option? I'm I'm just not familiar with it. You know, I'm I'm not exactly sure on that one. Okay, okay. I oh, you know what? I've got the uh, I've got the project page open for. Slate, it says, when you write docs with Slate, you're just writing Markdown, which makes it simple to edit and understand. Everything is written in Markdown. Even the code samples are just Markdown code blocks. So, you know, this has been, the, the whole Markdown question has been a huge, a huge, like, challenge for me. Um, you know, well, not challenge as in, like, oh, Markdown's hard to figure out, but challenge as in, do I throw away my whole data model right, and more robust right. publishing for this simple Markdown method? Do you ever have any uh, thoughts on trade-offs? Is, is is Markdown the way to go for API documentation? You know, I I really I'm really partial to that. I I know that you know there's a trend to go towards you know data-based API documentation. Um, however, I also feel that Markdown is simple, it's quick, and it's easy. I mean, especially if you you have developers who are actually contributing information, um, they love to be able to write in Markdown. Let, let's see. Uh, have you written up your your best practices anywhere? If somebody wants to read them and review all of these, uh, is there anywhere that they can go to maybe check out more detail? You know, I haven't written them all out yet, but that is something that I plan to do. And what I can do is I can go ahead and send that to you if you'd like to post that to your blog. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I think this would be great. I mean, I I love some of these points that you cover, and I wanted to hit upon a couple of others as well. Um, You mentioned... This is the last point that you hit, the task-focused, simple steps. Um, and this brings up a point that I've started to feel more strongly about lately. I think in the whole API documentation space, when we talk about API documentation, the reference material seems to get the most attention. But usually an actual user task involves maybe several endpoints. You have to 
get a response from one endpoint to plug it into another endpoint in order to you know do something with that um and so this this feeds into an actual sort of task what are users trying to accomplish with the api not what are the classes you know which is essentially like what are the tabs in my interface type of approach um so my question is uh when you do the task-based documentation, um, how do you kind of go about it? Do you do, uh, you know, step one, step two, step three in a list, or do you do, do you proceed section by section? Uh, do you have any thoughts on like difficulties with tasks or other approaches with the tasks? Well, I've seen tasks done, um, both ways in sections and in numbered lists. And I think sometimes it's it, it it all depends on what the developer is most comfortable with and what is e- the easiest to follow. Yeah, I mean because a lot of times these these tasks involve a lot of code samples and and you know, when you have like six code samples and they build on each other, sometimes a strict numbered list is just kind of a little bit stifling. But um, it, it can be, and sometimes it gets a bit overwhelming. What would you say is the biggest challenge that uh, you you face with API documentation? I think one of the biggest challenges that that we all face with API documentation and other documentation in general is that we're aware of what changes because things change so quickly and they can change daily, multiple times a day, weekly. It, it, it all depends. So it's, it's, it's a challenge yet it's something that can be overcome by making sure that we always maintain open communication with developers, with engineers, with um, user experience, so that that we're all involved from inception to deployment. You know the the keeping up the pace. I think is a really important um point that that you're talking about and in being aware of all these changes and so forth um and i know that in my in my documentation i sometimes lament the fact because i'm currently using oxygen xml for the bulk of it and in order to make a change let's say i add one sentence you know i have to regenerate it and re-upload it seems like uh in order to keep pace, a lot of times we, we need nimble platforms where you can log into something, make a quick update, hit save, and it's automatically, automatically updated. Uh, do you think? Uh, what are your thoughts on on key on the platforms that are necessary to keep up with a rapid pace? Well, I think I think if you have your content management system and your solution in place that allows you to quickly add, change, edit, and revise information, 
where you can quickly make the change just as you stated. You have, you know, a couple of words or a sample of code or a whole section or or even just a version number or a date or, you know, a terminology naming conventions or nomen, not, um, what your company's um, nomenclature is, that you have a CMS that allows you to do this quickly and to build your output quickly. Yeah, definitely have it. Once you get a system down and in place, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make it a lot faster. Um, and it sounds like you, you've also got a system for just keeping up to date with all of the changes internally through JIRA and, and other venues. Um, is there any topic that uh, you want to talk about that we haven't covered in this podcast so far? Well, I think that we pretty much covered everything. Um, what I will make sure that I do is to create that um, the summary of the best practices that that I found throughout all of my research and surveys that I did to the development community um, so that you can post that on your blog for others to come and take a look at. Yeah, that would be great. And um, we'll also publish that list. You mentioned the five kind of uh, model APIs to check out, the Desk, Stripe, Backbone, Parse, GitHub. And so those are those are all excellent. I think I visited most of those. And yeah, you're definitely right that uh, they raised the bar in terms of design standards and usability standards. So it's it it's uh, a challenge that's fun and exciting. Um, if people want to learn more about you, Andrea, maybe contact you, or ask you a question. How can they get in touch with you? Well, you can always find me on LinkedIn, and um, that my email address will be up there as well as you could send me a message on LinkedIn as well. And I'll be more than happy to respond. And I'm always open to discussing new trends and technologies. All right, Andrea. Well, thanks for doing this podcast with me. Well, thanks so much, Tom. I appreciate it.